Let's open our Bibles together at this time to the book of Acts, chapter 14 and verse 18. Acts 14.18 for our message from God's Word this morning. Acts 14.18 is located on page 1168 if you're using the church Bible. Today's date is November 6th, 2022. Today's full text will start in Acts 14.18 and go right on down to the end of the chapter in verse 28. And the title of this morning's message is The Sacrifice That Didn't Happen and More. (laughs) The Sacrifice That Didn't Happen and More. And we begin with the story of two men who were talking one day. And one of them said to the other one, My wife treats me like a god. And the other man said, Really? (laughs) And he said, Sure. Everything she cooks for me is either a burnt offering or a bloody sacrifice. (laughs) Well, speaking of sacrifices... I have a Bible question for you. Why did God ask Abraham to sacrifice his son when he was 12 years old? Well, it's because if he waited until the boy was a teenager, then killing him wouldn't have been much of a sacrifice. Teenagers. Wow. Speaking of sacrifices and being treated like a god, after the Apostle Paul healed a lame man here in Acts chapter 14, the superstitious Gentiles in the city of Lystra figured that he and his co-worker Barnabas must be gods if they were able to heal a man like that. And they tried to sacrifice some oxen to them. And as we saw at the end of our scripture reading, the apostles were able to talk them out of sacrificing to them, but just barely as we see, as we pick up the story in Acts chapter 14 and verse 18, where it says, And with these sayings, scarce restrained they, the people, that they had not done sacrifice unto them. Now, to begin with, I want you to think about that word scarce there. Because 
if these people thought Paul and Barnabas were gods, you would think that they would do whatever their gods told them to do or told them not to do without any questions asked. Wouldn't you think that? I mean, if your God tells you to jump, you say what? How high? <laughs> and if your God tells you not to sacrifice to you, wouldn't you say, yes, sir? Anything you say, sir. But these guys, what are you trying to tell me? Oh, don't worry about that. I notice it eventually. <laughs> the microphones tend to fall off and I step on them and that makes for some interesting sound on the internet. <laughs> but listen, these guys here, they didn't say that when Paul said don't sacrifice. They didn't say yes sir anything you say sir. They said, well, alright, we won't sacrifice to you, but we still think we should. <laughs> now, what you're seeing there is a perfect example of religion. Religion is man's idea of how he thinks God should be worshipped. Men are religious by nature and they love to worship God just as long as God doesn't have the nerve to tell them how to do it. <laughs> when He does, well, it doesn't take much to get those people to turn on their God. Let me give you an example. How many of you remember the story of Adam's son, Cain? God told him to bring a blood sacrifice, right? And Cain brought some fruits and vegetables instead. And when God didn't accept his idea of how to worship him, he turned on his God and got ticked off at God. And we see another example of people turning on their God as we read on here in verse 19 of our text, where it says, And there came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium, who persuaded the people, and having stoned Paul, drew or dragged him out of the city, supposing he'd been dead. <laughs> now, a minute ago, these Gentiles were worshiping Paul as a god. But when he didn't let them worship in the way that they wanted to worship him, it didn't take much to convince them to kill him instead of worshiping him. And listen, these Gentiles, they're not the only ones in the Bible affected by religion. How many of you remember what happened the day the Lord rode into Jerusalem? 
And the Jews cried, Blessed is He that comes in the name of the Lord. But one week later, some of those same Jews were crying, Crucify Him! All because He didn't act like they thought their God should act and fight back against Pilate and the Romans who wanted to put Him on a cross. And here's the point, folks. Unless your faith is based on the Word of God, your faith can be just as easily swayed. I know you don't think it could, but it could. It's the reason we teach the Word of God every Sunday. To keep that from happening. Amen? Amen. But now... Why would verse 19 say that after they stoned Paul, they they only supposed that he was dead? I mean, how hard is it to tell that a man is dead if he's sporting massive head wounds and he's not breathing anymore? Not hard at all. So, how come it says they only supposed Paul was dead? Well, it's because of what we read in the next verse in our text, in verse 20, where it says, after it says they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, Howbeit, as the disciples stood round about him, he rose up from the dead and came into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas, to Derby, where they make Derby hats, I guess. I don't know. But look, those unsaved Jews there, they were sure that Paul was dead. But after he got up and started walking around, they weren't so sure anymore. (laughs) Now, if you're not sure if Paul was dead or not, what do you say we asked Paul if he was dead or not? (laughs) You say, how are we going to do that? Well, 14 years after this happened, Paul wrote to the Corinthians about it in your first reference. And look at what he said in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 2 and 3. He said, speaking about himself in the third person, I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, whether in the body... I cannot tell. Or whether out of the body, I cannot tell. God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven, the throne room of God. Now listen, you don't get to go to the third heaven unless you're dead. So, how come Paul says he didn't know if he was in his body or just experiencing some kind of a vision. Well, believe it or not, souls in heaven feel like they have a body. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, look at what the Apostle John says about some men who died and went to heaven in Revelation 6, 9 and 11. 
In this vision, John says, I saw the souls, not the bodies, the souls of them who were slain for the Word of God. And white robes were given unto every one of them. Now let me ask you a question. If you could put on a robe, wouldn't you feel like you had a body? (laughs) Now they didn't have bodies. Their bodies were in the grave. Their souls were in heaven. But they felt like they had bodies. And Paul's body was being dragged out of town. But he felt like he had a body. So he wasn't sure he was dead, but but he was. But now, here I pause to remind you of something I told you just last Sunday. And that is, the miracles here in the book of Acts aren't recorded just to entertain us. They are selected from among a lot of miracles to be recorded in the Bible because they're the miracles that God can best use to teach us things. Things that are typified by those miracles. Last week, and in our scripture reading this morning, we saw that Paul healed a lame Gentile. And we talked last week about how he symbolized all the Gentiles who couldn't do what Paul says we ought to do in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 1. He says you ought to walk and to please God. Well, before Paul came along, only Jews could walk in ways that please God. But beginning with Paul's ministry, now the Gentiles could too. And the healing of that lame Gentile who couldn't walk typified that. So, how about this miracle here? What does this miracle of Paul's death and resurrection typify? Well, in order to know how to walk in ways that please God, you kind of got to have some instructions, don't you? And Paul got some instructions during this trip to heaven, as he says in the rest of that passage in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 3 and 4. I knew such a man whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell, God knoweth, how that he was caught up into paradise, another name for the third heaven, and heard unspeakable words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Now here, i got to tell you, most Christians misread that verse. They misread it to say that Paul saw and such wonderful things and heard such wonderful things that he just couldn't find the words to utter to express how amazing it all was in heaven. But that is not what Paul says there. He says he heard unspeakable words that weren't 
lawful for a man to utter. And he wasn't talking about uttering things that were against the laws of the Roman Empire. (laughs) He was talking about uttering things that were against the law of Moses. He heard the Lord tell him words about the grace message. Instructions about how to live under grace. Those are the words that are unlawful to utter. Listen, that's how this chapter starts. Look at your next reference in 2 Corinthians 12.1. That chapter starts with Paul saying, I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. The Lord's going to continue to tell me about the grace message. Well, after saying that, he went on to tell us how God gave him some revelations about the grace message when he was in heaven. It was against the law of Moses to go around saying what Paul said, that you can eat bacon. It was against the law of Moses to say that you don't have to rest on the Sabbath day. And that's why Paul's trip to heaven is recorded here at this very point in the book of Acts. It was to symbolize how now that God was allowing the Gentiles to walk in ways that pleased him, it was Paul who's going to tell him how to do it. Folks, as you're going to see this morning, this whole chapter, the rest of this chapter, is a type of what God wants us to be doing in the dispensation of grace. He wants us to look to Paul to know how to walk and please God. And then, peek ahead to verse 22. Because that verse symbolizes how God wants us to confirm the souls of people with what Paul teaches us. By doing what he says in the next verse, in verse 23. Ordaining leaders to teach us what Paul said. God laid it all here laid it all out here in the, as, the, as the dispensation of grace began to unfold to typify what we should be doing in the dispensation of grace. But now, you would think after the people of Lystra stoned Paul to death that he would leave and go preach someplace else. But some guys just can't take a hint. (laughs) So, in verse 20 there, it says that after Paul rose up and woke up from his dirt nap, (laughs) he, he got up, he dusted himself off, and he went right back into the city where they stoned him to death and preached some more. And then, Then he left to do what it says in verses 21 and 22 in your Bible now. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples, 
and exhorting them to continue in the faith. And that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. Now, here we see Paul going back to all those cities that he preached the gospel in to confirm the souls of the people he had led to Christ. Listen, that is just as... That is just as important a part of the ministry as leading people to Christ. Did you know that? You know, we we hear a lot these days about what they call deadbeat dads who father children and then instead of sticking around to be a father to the kid, they take off. Not the Apostle Paul. (laughs) Look what he told the Corinthians in your next reference. In 1 Corinthians 4, verses 15 and 19. He said, Though ye have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet have ye not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. And then a few verses later he says, and I will come to you shortly. Paul fathered the Corinthians, but a short time later, he went back to Corinth to confirm their souls. And we see him doing the same thing here, going back to the cities where he'd led people to Christ to confirm their souls. So how do you do that? How do you go about confirming a person you've introduced to Christ? Well, take a look at how some of Paul's co-workers did it in Acts 15.32. Judas and Silas exhorted the brethren with many words and confirmed them. They confirmed those new believers by exhorting them with many words, like we do here every Sunday, right? Those many words, folks, were words of grace. Words of grace that Paul taught. And do you know what it does to a new believer to to hear more about the grace of God that saved him? Well, let's compare how Isaiah confirm the Jews under the law in Isaiah 35, 3 and 4, where God told Isaiah, Strengthen ye the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees. How do you do that? Say to them that are of a fearful heart, Be strong and fear not. Well, according to that, When you confirm a believer, you strengthen him. You give him spiritual strength by saying words to him. Now in that case, those were the words of the law. Did you know that? Look at your next reference. He's quoting Deuteronomy 31.6. Be strong and of a good courage. Fear not. So he confirmed and strengthened the Jews under the law with words from the law. But 
Judas and Silas there in Acts 15, and Paul and Barnabas here in Acts 14, they confirm the souls of these grace believers with the words of the Apostle Paul. The words of grace. Words that included in verse 22 there in your Bible what Paul says about how someday we're going to enter the kingdom of God. Well, I find that encouraging, don't you? I find that very spiritually strengthening to know that someday we're going to enter the kingdom of God. Now, don't get confused. The kingdom it's talking about there isn't the kingdom of heaven on earth. It's the, the unseen kingdom of God, the one that Paul talks about in your next reference, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 to 52. A passage about the rapture. He says, flesh and blood cannot inherit, well, there's that phrase, the kingdom of God. But we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and we shall be changed. I don't have to tell you folks that our bodies, they're not equipped to, to live in the kingdom of God in heaven without the change that God's going to give us at the rapture. But now, you probably noticed in verse 22, Paul says that, yeah, we're going to enter the kingdom of God, but we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. Well, why would he have to say that? I mean, who doesn't know what it says in Job 5.7? Man is born under trouble as the sparks fly upward. You know how the sparks fly upward? Naturally. Ever sit around a campfire? They never go that way or, or, or down. They go upward. And people like you and me, we experience trouble in life just as naturally. The world calls it Murphy's Law. <laughs> Whatever can go wrong, what? Will go wrong. And just about everybody on the planet knows that. So why would Paul have to confirm these disciples by telling them we have to go through much tribulation in life before we can go to heaven? Ah, it's because under the law, God told the Jews if they obeyed him, they wouldn't have to experience the kinds of troubles that other people experience naturally. They wouldn't be troubled by bad health. If they obeyed him, they wouldn't be troubled by bad crops and all the other things that they were spared. But, beginning with the ministry of the Apostle Paul, there had been a dispensational change. Paul tells us in Romans 6.15 what? We're not under that law. We're under grace. That means that troubles in your life don't mean you've been disobeying God. 
So don't let some slick TV preacher tell you otherwise. I don't care how good he talks. Now, under the law, God also told the Jews that He wouldn't let their enemies trouble them if they would just obey Him. And that too was no longer true under grace. And these disciples here in Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, they needed to hear that as well. Because you remember the story. As soon as Paul led them to the Lord in those cities, God's enemies drove Paul out of town. And then God's enemies started persecuting them. And if those disciples thought that they were still under the law that said that God would protect His people from their enemies, they'd start thinking, God doesn't keep His promises. So Paul confirmed them by telling them that they must, through much tribulation, enter the kingdom of God. He told the Thessalonians the same thing in your next reference. 1 Thessalonians 2, 14 to 17 and 3, 3 and 4. He talked about how the Jews have persecuted us, the unsaved Jews. But no man should be moved by these afflictions. Don't get all shook up about it. For yourselves, no. We're appointed to afflictions. For verily when we were with you, we told you before that we would suffer tribulation. Now, as a grace believer, you know all that, right? But I can tell you, Christians who don't know how to rightly divide the word, they quote verses like Isaiah 54, 17, where God made a promise to the Jews. He said, No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. And every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment, thou shalt condemn. You're not even going to let you talk bad about him, he said. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. Now, Christians here in the United States, they quote that all the time. (laughs) But, don't try to quote that verse to Christians who live in other lands where weapons do prosper against God's people. Folks, Isaiah's words there have not been true for 2,000 years. And if you don't believe it, go home and read all 1,800 pages of Fox's Book of Martyrs. And that'll convince you God is no longer making sure that no weapon formed against thee prospers. But i got to warn you, if you don't get confirmed by knowing you have to pass through tribulation in life, you're not going to be able to do what it says there in verse 22. You're not going to continue in the faith. You're going to abandon the faith instead. Like a lot of Christians have when they think God's not keeping His promise. Now, Before Paul left those cities, he did more than just confirm those souls of those believers. He did something that would make sure 
they would continue to be confirmed. Something that he talks about in the next verse, back in your Bible now, in verse 23. In verse 23, it says, And when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. Before Paul left, he ordained men who would continue to strengthen the disciples after he left town. Ordaining men to the ministry, folks, is another important part of the ministry. An extremely important part of the ministry. You say, well, pastor, if it's such an important part of the ministry, how come Paul didn't do it when he first was in those cities leading those people to the Lord? Well, take a look at just a few of the qualifications of a pastor or spiritual leader in your next reference. 1 Timothy 3, 2 and 3, Paul says a bishop then must be not given to wine, no striker, doesn't go around hitting people when he gets mad, no, not covetous. Well, you know what? It takes time to tell if a man is given to wine or not. You can't always tell right away if a man is a striker or, or covetous, right? That's why Paul said in 1 Timothy 5.22, lay hands suddenly on no man. Before you do what we did when we ordained Paul to the ministry, before you lay hands on a man to ordain him, you have got to know him. you got to get to know him and then ordain him. And then... Do what it says at the end of verse 23 there and commend him to the Lord on whom they believed. Now, I got to ask you, what other Lord would they commend him to other than the Lord on whom they believed? <laughs> well, I think he's thinking about the, the, the Lord that he talked about in 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 4 where he talked about another Jesus whom we have not preached. You say, who's that? That's talking about the Jesus preached by the twelve apostles, folks. The twelve apostles who were under the law of Moses. These leaders in Acts 14 here had not believed on that Jesus. They believed on the Jesus of grace. The one Paul preached. The one Paul commended the elders in the city of Ephesus in your next reference. In Acts 20.32, he uses that same word, commend. I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up. Folks, the Jesus preached by the twelve under the law can't build you up. That Jesus can't edify you. It tears you down to think that God's not keeping the promises He gave under the law. It weakens.
weakens your faith. It doesn't strengthen it. But leaders who are commended to that Jesus, the Jesus of the twelve, they have to teach the law because look what the Lord told the twelve in Matthew 23, 2 and 3. The Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore, whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do. They represent Moses, so you do what they say. They were under the law of Moses. But leaders here who were commended to the Jesus that Paul preached, they teach grace. Like Paul says in your last reference in Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him, rooted and built up, edified in Him, and established in the faith, as you were taught by me. Let me ask you, Didn't you receive Christ by grace through faith without the law? Shake your heads up and down. Sure. So walk in Him without the law. If you love the Lord Jesus Christ for saving your soul by grace through faith without any works of the law, you don't need a law to tell you how to walk in ways that please Him. You do it out of love and gratitude for what He's done for you. All right, after Paul ordained those elders, we read in the next three verses, back in your Bible now, beginning in verse 24, and after they had passed throughout Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. I practiced those names all week. And when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia and thence sailed Antioch, from whence they had been recommended to the grace of God for the work which they fulfill. We studied that back in Acts 13. After preaching in all those cities, Paul and Barnabas returned to their home church in Antioch where they'd been recommended to the grace of God for their work, which the end of verse 26 says they fulfilled. Now how did they know that they had fulfilled their work? Did you ever tell someone or text or email someone and ask them what they're doing and, and they say nothing? I always answer back and say, well, if you're not doing nothing, how do you know when you're done? (laughs) Well, how did Paul and Barnabas know they were done? How did they know, as it says there, that they fulfilled their work? It's because the church in Antioch clearly spelled out what they wanted them to do. So when they did it, they knew they were done. The church in Antioch told them to go out, preach the gospel, lead people to Christ, and then go back and confirm the souls of the the people in those cities, and then ordain elders in every city. And you know what? When they did that, they knew where they were done. 
day knew they fulfilled the work for which they'd been sent. And when they got back to Antioch, it says in your last two verses in the Bible now, when they were come and had gathered the church together, they rehearsed all that God had done with them and how He had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. And there they abode long time with the disciples. Now, in closing, there's something you and I can learn from all this as a church. And that is, churches have to have a plan for their work so they can know when they fulfilled it. Years ago, I was sitting in on a a board meeting at Brian Bible Society. I'm not on the board, but I was sitting in on it. They wanted me there. And board chairman, Pastor John Fredrickson, he said something I've never forgotten. He told the board, we have to have a plan about how we're going to do this thing we're we're proposing to do. Because if we aim at nothing, we're bound to hit it. If you aim at nothing, you'll hit nothing. If you don't plan to do something, you won't end up doing it. Do you know why the Gulf War was such a, such a military success? It's because our generals learned a lesson from the Vietnam War. The United States never declared war on Vietnam. Do you know that? So it, it technically wasn't a war. Historians usually call it a police action. We were there, in other words, to maintain the peace. Well, folks, that's something that's never finished. You don't believe me? Ask any policeman. He'll tell you. So, when President Bush asked our generals to take our military into Iraq, our generals asked him what exactly he wanted done so that when they did it, they could declare victory. He told them, I want you to go free Kuwait, the country that Iraq had conquered, and our military did it. You know what? My plan here at Faith Bible Church has always been to teach the Word, to edify God's people, and make sure that new people know how to be saved by hearing the Word taught. I don't know if you know this or not, but preaching the Gospel, it means more than just saying Christ died for our sins forward and backward in nine other ways to Sunday. Preaching the Gospel includes expounding the details of the Gospel in the verses that make up the mechanics of salvation. Like the verses found in Romans and and countless other places in the Bible. The nuts and bolts of salvation. When those are preached, you're preaching the Gospel. And then you confirm the souls of God's people with the words of God's grace. 
and all of you well-grounded grace believers. Your proof that we have fulfilled that work along with all the people who follow us online and and all the people that uh, our church has blessed uh, through my ministry at Berean Bible Society. You know, I can't talk about this without a memory of something that happened years ago. A man, a man who'd been to seminary. And seminaries is the place where they teach pastors and preachers all, all the fluffy ways to build a church. <laughs> you know, you plan to do this and you all these. Go- and he visited, and after a few Sundays, he said, you know, he criticized me and our church by saying, he says, you don't even know where you're going to be five years from now. And he said that because he didn't think we had a plan. <laughs> and I told him, I know exactly where we're going to be five years from now. Right here, preaching the gospel, teaching God's word rightly divided. And that's where we're going to be till the Lord comes, right? All right. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Apostle Paul and his tenacity. We thank you for his courage to go right back into a city where they stoned him to death. Lord, we're, we're embarrassed almost. We don't, how we don't have any kind of thing to face like that. And yet we don't have his boldness. Help us to take a page out of his book and ask others to pray for boldness and pray for it ourselves as the Apostle Paul did, that we might open our mouths boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. We pray in Christ's name.